What would you like to share with listeners today? Other ways of responding to harm. Liberation. This sound shield that you could take with you to protest. Collaborative dialogue. Demystify the process. Liberation Loops. Hi, my name is Carly Beck and you're listening to Liberation Loops, a series that has been created and produced from both the 3CR studios and my bedroom on the lands of the Wandjeri and the Budurung peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system. And through this series, I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and in what ways people are learning to heal from harm. Today, you're going to hear a conversation that I have with Vincent Silk, poet, writer, and community organizer living in Nam. This poem is called Now More Than Ever, the lost manuscript of a world-weary twink. One, there is only so much I can tell you. From what I can decipher, he was a very private person. The words are very old and the paper very fragile. Translation is an art. It will crumble in your hands. Fair warning, the tale may be no different from those you have heard before. We are not promised new discoveries just because we dig. But some word must be uttered, some flag raised for them, whose dusty possessions haunt filing cabinets, tended only by a furrow of volunteers, doomed to forever ferret through ancient biscuit tins. So here it is. Panning across the scape of a long road, a slight declining slope, under which is a free, wide-open place, as inappropriate as it is to imagine. Buildings touch shoulders. On the second floor is a gym. A row of treadmills overlooks the street, occupied at intervals one-two, like piss etiquette, though nobody ever explained it. Behind lies a flat plain, carpeted, stupidly, incipient punishment for falling down. Groups of adults nightly perform high kicks. They giddy up and yell, Yeehaw! The one we have waited for comes, wrapped thrice in sweat-wicking cloth. He is encased in the swaddling comfort of firm and form-keeping plastic, never to be moved again. The years have not been kind to him. Aged twink, beset by the tidal flowing of smog, he is bricked over, Maiden become crone. He points a long, crooked finger at the steam room, whispers, accursed place. Far below, an unsuspecting rainforest bird, intent on picking out the best bits, removes with surgical precision a log of meat from within soggen pastry, heavy with rain. Her warm scales are perfect. Her bald, raw head swivels to look at him as he stumbles, released from his labours, across the threshold and out into the night. The bird, through no fault of her own, ever seeking unwrapped treats, juicy and complete. Two. Neither have the years been kind to this pocket of earth, ravaged by cranes, wet streams along soft rock. This is the most beautiful place on earth and everyone here spends their lunch break just jogging through it. The aged twink almost trips, crouches down to inspect the lines, busting a path through overflowing green and and brown flora, inflated pipes, poor foundations, exposed to rotting, 
pram tracks, he whispers, sniffing the air. He draws his climber-cool cloak around his shoulders. The way stone leaks, you'll never get used to it. Walks home at a reasonable pace. Should have stayed with the old one, the safe one, the public place. Strolling by the river in search of the right one, the thrill of the chase. Blades of grass and watered steel. Opening along his seams with silver insides flashing in the light of the last whale oil lamp in the world. Above him, someone unseen draws the drapes across the blacked out windows. Whose go is it? What makes the places we touch come back to us? Touching the walls with their tongues on hot days when the bricks sweat through the paint, when the lacy cap adheres to the scalp. They've been dragged from the tops of trees, gouged out from soft, wet ground. Help yourself to the reversible thing, if you can, if you can be helped. In the middle of his back, his fresh tattoo of Patty Lapone unhinges her jaw and caws into the abyss, gaping and emotional with enormous teeth like bricks. In the drinking pen, he's full of shit, gay as in happy, as in fuck me, as in fish man. An archive of feeling, high pollen day. Someone slaps his back and he winces, Paddy Lapone scowls. And what of the regional fetishist, him without networks? Who will mourn if not you for the one who, autoerotically, encased himself in a polyester fish costume that he laboured over, sliding it, sliding into it only when perfection demanded it, and engaged in that most specific of private pleasures, drowned in the dam. Fishman remembrance at this point in the journey makes him weak. Thicker fabric is needed to keep it all in. Wrapped threefold at least, calico crisscrossed with snail trails, words like grove and dell fluttering to rest, hardening into a jelly of forgotten metamucil, thick, fibrous and foul. Eighty or a hundred years ago would have seen him going to church, blanched and starched, romanticised in war, still cruising by the river, the silver moon at his back. Earlier still and he obsesses, lying awake at night with the knotted sheep intestines he would have required, the things he wishes he didn't know. He burst his banks, shuddering, destroyed psycho-spiritually by the mere suggestion of another two minutes on the stationary bike. Three. And a curtain of awful, oily English wool falls, covering a tramp stamp. Abolition now. Little M's wrap the torso. Birds and barbed wire. Rolled in a blanket and tipped into the sea. Mariner's coat, heavy enough without pockets, weighed down by river rocks and sheep's teeth. Those who haunt him are diffuse and thinly spread trickling over porous rocks, particularly unmemorialised, which doesn't mean unremembered. Big, blown eggs in wharfside real estate. Tapping the earth at four precise points. Brig, bilge, lock hospital, darkened doorway. It only takes a second. A genteel gang obsessed with making public space private, petitioning the council a dummy hanging from a tree, the boarding up of dens, the ghost of dazzling queens, eternal, 
jewelled droplets, moist, adorning her feather boa. That path, trodden by feet thick with calluses, rough with hustle crumbs, shouldered heavy bags overflowing, laden with cured sheep gut. Those little words, grove, dell, pox. He turns the corner, lumbers into his street, cautious. Everyone knows the feeling. His eyes, two little pouches of, of age. Air sucked out like an opposite balloon. Regulated passage of people in and out. She punches a hole in the time capsule and throws treasure into the crowd. A kid scoops up a fit from the ground, holds it tight against his abdomen and won't let it be wrestled away. The curtain twitches. Someone scratched fuck off yuppie prick into the red door. It only takes a second. Thank you for sharing, Vincent. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for um, thanks for letting me read that. It felt nice. <laughs> and in this podcast, we're really delving into you know a lot of daily practices um, that people can use for both community accountability, but also working towards transformative justice and challenging the criminal legal system. Um, so, what brought you to sharing this poem today? Um, I think why I wanted to share this particular one is because it's something that I wrote a few years ago uh, in 2017 when I was doing this writer's residency, um, which was in Sydney and thinking about a whole bunch of bits of history that seemed relevant to me, like thinking about particular cultural ephemera in that part of inner eastern Sydney. And I'd engaged and absorbed all of this information about social movements and social scenes in those suburbs. Uh, So like the Aboriginal community and medical legal centres and like uh, community breakfasts and stuff that was set up in the 70s. Um, Lots of writing and thinking about sex work in Australia and and I guess in the colonies since invasion to this land. And as well as that, thinking about the legacy of HIV and the AIDS crisis and what an impact that's had on the way I understand myself um, in, in in the community that I'm a part of and just at, at large. Um, and I revisited that poem last year for a reading and I wanted, I wanted to read it today because I am interested in doing this kind of double take thing of looking back and forward and um, looking at things that have happened before and resistance to state control and carceral, carceral ways of controlling people uh, looking back and looking forward kind of in the same breath, which I think poetry is really well situated to accomplish that goal. I think also why I chose to read this particular poem is it feels really bizarrely relevant with the like with the COVID-19 pandemic stuff that's happening, which is probably a whole different conversation. Um, but I was, I was for a lot of, a lot of time really obsessed with lock hospitals, which were which I mentioned in the poem, which are like medical prisons, which were a Victorian England um, invention, like so many really fucked up things, uh, mm. where like a lot of sex workers were locked in these medical hospitals, at, like to be detained. And also the lock hospital has a big history on this land since British invasion. Um, and there, uh, there are a bunch of like First Nations lock hospitals that were used like up until, you know, the mid-20th century. Um, and and so thinking, I guess, 
for me, the intersection of like medical surveillance and medical incarceration incarceration has always been this big haunting spectre. Um, maybe it's part of my like particular way of making sense of my like particular transgender embodiment and mm. um, myself in this moment in history. So, so yeah, I, I find it, yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to share that part of the poem with you today. Yeah, I think part of writing that poem, um, I, I was doing a lot of like walking around in the rocks and Miller's Point in Sydney at the time. And it was at the time, it was uh, mid-2017 and it was when the Sirius building was being evicted. Um, so that was a big, and also heaps of other public housing, which was in um, this extremely upmarket postcode in um, Sydney near the harbour, which was always a really working class and public housing suburb and in its first iteration as a suburb um, after, you know, like in the establishment of that colony was a really, was like a total slum and now it's like this squillion dollar harbourside view area and a lot of the ways that I was thinking about place, I remember I walked past this like real estate agent and there was this bowl of hand-blown polished emu eggs and I was just struck by the like absurdity of the like of colonial violence of that Mm. like it just it really it was an image that really stuck with me um walking around seeing all of these posters and and banners up being like this is my home I've lived here for 50 years um and then the actual looming villain of of development is like this ancient this well not not even ancient but like a, a um, historical villain of like usurping and theft and property as as I guess yeah as theft I guess to be to use like a well-worn anarchist phrase. <laughs> um, and talking about anarchism and vigilantism, um, in your mm. first novel, Sisters of No Mercy, it's a tale of an underground network and some people would probably view um, some of your characters as being vigilantes or thieves but really I just saw a group of people coming together um, who were living in precarious housing and economic situations caring for each other. Can you tell us a bit about how that story evolved? Oh yeah um, well that I mean the story really evolved because of the characters um, so it's a it's like a interesting pickup that you've offered there. Um, it, it began with like a really different short story, which um, was called Obvious Escapes. And it was about a group of young workers who had like robbed the owner of the takeaway shop where they worked. And the takeaway shop owner was this kind of like slumlord. And and the cat, I wrote that when I was like 22, I think. Um, and it, it's published in like my uni writing anthology. And the characters from that story kind of merged or developed into the characters in Sisters of No Mercy. And I guess, yeah, like picked up or uh, developed new characters or new friends and, um, yeah, new enemies along the way. Uh, and, I, yeah, I, it, I spent most of my 20s writing that book. Mm. Um, from I was published when I was 28, and so that's like a, the bulk of my 20s. And... I kind of like thinking about it taking such a long time because, like, community organising takes a really long time mm. as well. And the title, Sisters of No Mercy, is 
taken from the collective in the book, which is, yeah, like you say, like a underground network of people um, maybe being thieves or vigilantes. But, yeah, I guess the the core of it is, like, that they res- resist housing instability and, like, the cruelty of the state when it comes to evicting people mm. um, and, and, like, respond to the fact that people are unhoused by with direct action. Um, and, yeah, it, it is funny, a funny thing, like, describing people as thieves or vigilantes or what it might look like to, you know, the average Australian reader. Mm. Um, I wanted to make use of, I guess, my knowledge about collective organising because you asked about how it's kind of, how evolved, it developed yeah. and how... Yeah, how it evolved, yeah. Well, I mean, I've been part of, like, I've been doing community and collective organising since I was in my late teens and back then it was kind of like it was in the heyday of like underground music venues in Sydney in the inner west that were all getting shut down and then I guess I have kind of moved to like running a DIY queer social centre and organising around like um, organising around responding to sexual assault and like intimate partner violence in my friend group and I've been also spending the last five years in Melbourne doing that kind of anti-violence work as well. Um, and I guess that it's a really... I, I wanted to write a book about collective action mm. um, in climate disaster because that was a really big part of the book that reflected my understanding of the world, which is a, a collective understanding. Um, and it, even though the characters aren't like fictionized, fictionalised versions of real people or anything, it's really the way that I exist in the world is collectively and so that really informs how I approached writing that book. Um, But it is really hard to do that in literature because so much of, like, the literary canon, whether it's, um, like, a Western literary canon or even lots of non-Western literature, uh, it's about heroes or special people or, like, the one, a chosen one, Mm. kind of like a sun god narrative. Yeah. Like... Um, even even heaps of, you know, sci-fi and stuff, which I love, which is about really, like, powerful, um, you know, uh, like, in, intense women, it's often, like, uh, even though it's this kind of resistance to patriarchy, it's often this kind of specially, special one hero rising above the rest. Um, and And so I really wanted to write about what I know to be true, which is that change actually happens through um, stuff that's, like, quite boring, like sitting at meetings <laughs> for a long time, <laughs> you know. You know? Um, and, um, and there were multiple parts in the book where the characters are at different houses. Uh, they're called Mercy uh-huh. Houses, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. That's and right. then everybody shares a laptop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like... Um, you know, the laptop schedule and being like, oh, okay, the mum uh, is the mum with her kids is going to use the laptop now. So, oh, I got to go. I'll borrow someone else's laptop. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that just actually the kind of like boring minutiae that is involved in trying to do stuff all together. And but while, you know, remaining nonviolent towards each other. Mm. Um, so I, I, want, I sometimes have wondered if that's why I, if I unconsciously then chose to write Sisters of No Mercy as a heist, like I chose the form of a heist because it's inherently, you know, exciting. Mm. Um, and I, I, I love that kind of literature. I've always really loved thrillers and, um, you know, secret, like spy novels and stuff. Even that's, They're kind of like my guilty pleasure because they're 
so fucking carceral and gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I guess I wanted to, like, show the way that people participate in underground economies or resist the state, um, I guess, using the same kind of tools as people in literature and in film and stuff use to just get money or, like, get ahead or save the world or something like this. Does, mm. does that make sense? Absolutely. But I loved your commitment to building characters in this book because mm. I just found that I resonated with some of the traits of these characters. Um, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. Mm. <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Kelly. Um, but it's interesting because when I first started doing activism was in university um, mm, but I, yeah. was a, I was a part of a fossil free group and because that was being organised by a really big NGO, then everything mm. we did was really like corporate, the way that we organised. Uh-huh. And I, you know, towards the end, I wasn't excited about the actions that we were doing. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I love hearing you talk about the excitement of collective mm. care and collective organising. Yeah, I mean, I think I I think we have like we have a right to like be excited and be enjoy like to enjoy what we're doing because it is often a really hard slog and it feels really overwhelming. Um and hearing you say that you resonated with characters is really, you know, that's like a really important thing to me for you know, to hear that readers understand because we're you know we're I'm talking about something maybe that you understand and and that's really a beautiful experience to have um as a writer to know that someone understands I think I understand I really get what you mean about like oh it's really corporate and um sanitized and Mm, very rigid uh uh-huh yeah yeah it's very rigid and doesn't have the same kind of excitement and I guess for me that's why I was so committed to like to the form of the heist because I was like well it's crime Mm. um it's it's like it's theft and it's crime and um even and it's like also an attempt at like at justice I, I guess um even though it's kind of momentary like a lot of the characters are like really flawed and like buffoons or like one of the main characters is just a total is like this walking disaster who's Mm. just always fucking fucking everything up (laughs) but like but still participates and I think there's something like there's something that really appeals to me about telling stories about how we relate to each other and how we just fumble around and like there's like these fools and then there's these pissed off competent geniuses who and they just love each other and they work shit out together mm. um, and like everybody has actually something useful to offer to the to the project whatever it is and have you found that writing and poetry has been a really healing experience for you yeah for, definitely for sure um, I mean I, I think a lot of people have an experience of like uh, you know when you've experienced something that's really affecting or traumatic or um, upsetting or like however however that you're understanding an experience you've had I think you know even the most conservative types of therapies will often say like oh keep a journal or like um write it all down and um and you know get it out of you that kind of thing so I think there is an element of of purging but I think it's more than that as well I think it's like a 
I was reading uh, that very famous text, The the Body Keeps the Score by Bethel van der Kolk. Um, I don't know if you've read it. Um, But he uh, is speaking about how when someone experiences a like a traumatic event, it, you know, he's talking about like neurobiology. So the shit that happens in your brain when something really terrible happens and bits of your brain have to go offline for a while while you survive. But also part, he was talking about something that kind of goes offline is your capacity to connect to creativity and and that like by connecting with that and by by engaging that part of your brain, you're like, you're waking yourself up and you're waking yourself up to to joy and like pleasure and different experiences and and like where people who have experienced um any you know violence or any anything really that's not ideal are really creative and really smart and I think we we like I know that I definitely use writing and have used writing to make sense of things that don't make sense Mm. um yeah I think I for for me it's like a it's a huge uh, a hugely healing and um like empowering um and embodying practice and I was wondering if you could share a tool for listeners so that they could also Mm. use an embodying tool for their healing Mm -hmm. process so this is this is a grounding practice that I've been doing uh, because I've found it very hard to ground myself with all of the uneasiness and confusion in this um, this moment where we are in Australia about to tip over into national pandemic, but we're we're part of a global pandemic right now. Um, so I've been trying to use writing to ground myself and feel that kind of joy and. Um, So I've been doing this automatic writing exercise. So I like to set up a timer or like say 20 minutes and have a cup of tea or something um, while I'm doing this automatic writing. Automatic writing is like you write without editing yourself. So you just write freely, whatever comes out. And it's automatic writing with a prompt. So the practice is take a line from your favorite book or your or favorite poem or song or performance. Uh, I'll I'll tell you my line. Mine is from a transcript of a live performance that I saw in New York City earlier this year. It's by a collective called What Would a HIV Doula Do? And the work is called Another Wave Remains. And it's a transcript of a live reading. Um, and this is the line. I want to be seen by you. I don't want to be dismissed or forgotten. So speak the line aloud to yourself. You might want to speak it aloud to yourself twice. Then write it down. And then really think about why this line affects you, like why these words speak to you so much. And then write down how it makes you feel. Where do you feel it kind of resonating in your body? Does it make your shoulders feel light? Does it make you want to stand up and stretch your legs or curl up in a ball? Does it make you feel like your your forehead is really crinkled up with kind of frustration? And then kind of um, write down your physical sensations and everything that 
that comes out of you when you're when you read that line or say it aloud to yourself. And then if you need another prompt, think about whose voice you hear when you speak this line aloud. Is it your own voice or like a collective voice or somebody else's voice, someone that you know really well? And then think about if you had to respond to it, what would you say? And all of these things are prompts to have a conversation and to be with those words um, and kind of collaborate with those words in a writing practice. So write down all of those things and as you do, notice how the words are flowing. Don't try and judge the words or edit them. Just keep writing as unconsciously as possible and write all your reactions to the quote that you wrote down, everything that you think about when when you read it. And then write your reactions to your own words and your own thoughts and your ideas as they form on the page. And just let your thoughts come in whatever way that they do. And then when you're done, when your timer goes off, read over what you've written, even though I think it's sometimes hard to read over what we've written straight away. But as a part of this practice, I found it quite helpful. And just observe any reflections that you've had about how you're feeling, what you're thinking, Do you feel a new meaning that has come up with the prompt phrase? Do you feel more connected to what you've written? You might even want to share it with somebody else or you might just want to keep it to yourself. Yeah, that's that's what I've been doing lately. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Vincent Silk, for joining us on Liberation Loops. Thank you, Carly. It was so good to talk to you. And that was a conversation that I had with Vincent Silk. And now I'm sure you're all wanting to go out and buy his first novel, Sisters of No Mercy. Next week, I'm going to be speaking with Nawa Nightshade, who is a deaf doula and somatics practitioner living in Nipaluna. See you next week.